Good morning. So we are, we're picking up um, chapters four to six of Luke's gospel this week. And so far we've had the introduction to Luke's gospel. Uh, we've looked at the birth narrative of Jesus and how Luke begins with this vision of pregnancy and this long-awaited expectation that something is going to happen in Israel. And last week, Rich took us then through the, the testing of Jesus in the wilderness, uh, the temptations that Jesus faced and that we all faced to be relevant, to be spectacular, and to be powerful. And now we read of Jesus returning in the power of the Spirit to the place he grew up, a town called Nazareth in the region of Galilee, about 90 miles north of Jerusalem. And I don't know what the word power makes you think of. I know for the likes of Phil Wade, it makes you think of your golf swing. For some people, it might be your one rep max in the gym. It might be your energy bills. It might be the idea of leadership and perhaps the misuse and abuse of leadership. But Jesus returns in the power of the spirit. The Greek word dunamis, where we get the word dynamite from, means force, might, ability, efficacy, energy. And so this is Jesus coming in the Holy Spirit's power, not his own power, but this pure, divine source of power. And after we have read, straight after we've read that passage of Jesus in the desert, fragile, weak, hungry, deprived, malnourished, now we see Jesus empowered. And he arrives back as the protagonist of the story, supernaturally empowered and ready to go. And the Gospels, when we read through the Gospels, they, they move from Jesus' birth. Luke kindly offers us a story of this zealous 12-year-old Jesus in the temple, engaging with the scholars uh, in Jerusalem. But then we fast forward. We miss all these years. We fast forward to Jesus being 30 years old, beginning in this ministry. And of course, in those, you know, it's, there's not a vacuum where nothing happens. Jesus grew. He worked. He labored. He socialized, he prayed, he engaged probably in grassroots theological education. But Luke tells us that Jesus increased in wisdom and in years. And he increased in divine and human favor over that period. And that Jesus was beginning to earn himself a bit of a reputation by this point in the story. And Luke again says, news about Jesus spread through the whole countryside. And so now here he is, this homegrown laborer turned rabbi invited to contribute to the weekly Sabbath service in his local synagogue. Jesus, the new talk of the town, the son of Joseph and Mary, the carpenter's son, over whom these prophecies, the wonderful prophecies were foretold at his birth, stood up in the temple, eyes fixed on him, and in the power of the Spirit, he begins to read the Scriptures. So first of all, let's take a look at what Jesus had to say, and then we'll look at how he was received. Um, there's a, a slide here, and I'm sorry it's a little bit small, but I just wanted to get probably more the visual um, shape of this, really. Luke presents this scene in quite a, an intentional way, and I think just by reading the text and um, kind of a surface-level reading, we don't really pick up on this, but it's quite a structured literary technique that focuses our attention on the messianic vocation that Jesus had come to fulfill. So these are verses 14 to 21. And you'll notice that there's kind of an arrow shape to them that point to that uh, red line in the middle where it says G. 
Um, and you can see as well within there, there's, there's an intentional mirroring of language and phrases. Uh, the standing and sitting, handing and returning, unrolling and rolling the scroll. And they draw us to that middle point there where it says, and recovery of sight for the blind. So this was, the, this was what Jesus was reading, um, reciting from Isaiah 61, one of the Old Testament prophecies with a subtle um, inclusion as well from Isaiah 58. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news for the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we might conclude from these verses that Jesus' mission was exclusively a social and political one. Hope for the poor, freedom for the blind, uh, sorry, freedom for the oppressed and healing for the blind. We can read this and we can end up with a depiction of Jesus as some radical political revolutionary come to overturn the corruption and injustice and inequality of society. And from these verses, we could argue ultimately then that the Christian gospel is a social gospel. And so we begin to ask, without any reference to sin or salvation or forgiveness or atonement, some of these big theological headlines that we often think about, is the good news of Jesus fundamentally about God's favoring of people who are downtrodden by corrupt systems, institutions, policies, and regimes? Is the gospel that we sing about every week purely a condemnation of unjust worldly powers that Jesus has come to overturn? What is Jesus saying here? What's he saying of himself and his mission? To begin with, the reading starts with the words, the spirit of the Lord is on me, which straight away reminds us of his baptism. You can remember the scene where the dove rests upon Jesus. And it reminds us then of this, this power, this divine power with which Jesus now speaks. This is no ordinary rabbi or teacher in our midst. There's something special here. But it also signifies to those who are sat in the synagogue, kind of like this, that by drawing upon those ancient prophecies of Israel, Jesus is now announcing a new thing. As we've been talking about in previous weeks, Luke's purpose in writing uh, his gospel is that we might know of what has been fulfilled among us, that we might know the certainty of the things that we've been taught. Luke's got an agenda and a purpose here. And it's no coincidence that when Jesus rolls up this scroll, the Isaiah scroll, and he hands it back, he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Something new is happening in Galilee through the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Something powerful is going on. Something that is going to satisfy the deep, desperate longing of God's people. So what is this new thing that Jesus is announcing here? Firstly, uh, you can flick on to the next slide. There's a simplified version of that there. Um, when we look at E and E1 here, which are a, a, a couplet, um, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus has come in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor. What is the good news? Who are the poor? If you cast your minds back a few weeks now to Richard's sermon on, when we looked at the Beatitudes, the first Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, you remember that um, the inference is upon spiritual poverty. Poverty that's not principally concerned with material wealth, the things we have, the money we have in our bank, 
As one commentator on this passage writes, 600 years of use before and after Jesus confirm that the word poor means primarily those who tremble at the word of God. So who are the poor? It's all of us. It's every, every one of us. We're all poor, deprived, impoverished before God Almighty because of our sin. And therefore, we tremble at the words of God because we are unworthy. And the corresponding line on our diagram, E1, says that Jesus has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this should remind us of the Jubilee from the Old Testament, uh, where in Israel, every 50 years, um, all debts were forgiven. Slaves were set free. Land was returned to its original owners. And, and God would absolve the sins of the, the entire nation of Israel. The Jubilee was a once-in-a-generation moment that, of grace and mercy that brought about freedom from the guilt and the effects of sin in society. It's a remarkable concept. And interestingly, in this, in this line, when Jesus is reading in the synagogue, he, he chooses to exclude the second part of what we would have read if we'd have picked up the actual scroll, which says, the day of vengeance of our God. He misses that bit out. And by leaving those words out, um, from what would have been a familiar verse to people sat in the synagogue, Jesus is obviously trying to communicate a particular message here. And we'll come back to this later, but it's most likely that exclusion of those words that really ticks off the congregation in the synagogue. But think of it like this. Rather than undermining the original message of the prophet, Jesus is intentionally trying to emphasize the sweet proximity of God's mercy. In Jesus, in the person of Jesus and through his ministry, the, the jubilee season of God's favor and blessing has arrived. That's what the message is. Jesus wants the synagogue congregation to know that the focus of his earthly ministry and his mission is upon salvation, not condemnation. Yes, God's final judgment is on the horizon. But here, now, in the person of Jesus, we've this open opportunity, this window of opportunity for every person to repent and encounter the transformational mercy of God. Debt is cleared, like the Jubilee. Debt is cleared. Identity is restored. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the power and the essence of the good news. That's what we sing about. That's what we should get excited about. That's what we long for. And it's news that we all need to hear today. Secondly, on our diagram there, um, F and F1, uh, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and to set the oppressed free. Jesus has been sent in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim freedom to the captives and also to send the oppressed out into freedom. And so this gospel proclamation then moves into the shape of justice and freedom. One commentary I read on this, um, the author of the, of the commentary had lived in different parts of the world. Um, he'd ministered to prisoners and refugees, and he noted that the most wonderful thing about release from captivity is the freedom to return home. And I love that, the freedom to return home. And this should remind us of the stories of the Exodus in the Old Testament and Israel's later exile in Babylon this imprisonment of God's people in foreign lang lands, or this, this anguish of God's people, and their yearning to return home. And building on the notion of spiritual 
uh, poverty and the good news of God's mercy. Jesus then uses Isaiah's words to describe more fully in more detail our captivity to sin and the concrete consequences of sin that we all experience, we all have experienced, we all will experience, and in fact, we all participate in as well. In other words, sin, salvation, these big theological things, they're not just concepts, they're real things that affect us all. And again, Jesus does a little bit more editing of the text. I think if anybody's going to be allowed to do this, it's Jesus, right? But Jesus does a little bit more editing of the text, and he inserts a phrase from Isaiah 58 where it says, Sets, uh, set the oppressed free. He's, he's brought that a little bit in from Isaiah 58. And that's a chapter in Isaiah's prophecy where Isaiah scorns the Israelites. He tells them off. He rebukes them for their empty, tokenistic worship. They were doing all these wonderful, pious things, fasting, sacrificing, worshipping. But they were also continuing to oppress people. They were forgetting about the homeless. They were letting the hungry amongst them starve. They were prioritizing their own selfish needs and desires. And so the first, the building block, if you like, of the good news of God's mercy is to all of us who are spiritually poor. But then Jesus adds this other layer. He says that he's come to set humanity free from the realities of sin into something more beautiful. An eternal shalom, an eternal peace with God where there will be no more tears, there'll be no more injustice, there'll be no more suffering or death. And then thirdly, we arrive at this focal point. And it's interesting that the idea of sight is found here. And from the Hebrew, um, the original language of, of Isaiah's scroll, this phrase literally reads as the opening to those who are bound. And Jesus, the Messiah, he's come in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the good news of this new jubilee, uh, jubilee season, freedom from the tyranny of sin. And now we encounter the compassion of God, the power of God's compassion. You see, Jesus hasn't just come to patch things over. He's not just come to give us a quick fix for things. He's not come to merely inspire a better way of living but in the most profound way we can imagine, Jesus has come to bring about a personal freedom, this, this liberty to know God and enjoy him forever. That's what this is all about. And so the gospel in the fullest sense is about healing and wholeness. From the smallest grievance, somebody that's ticked you off a little bit, to the deepest, darkest evils we see in our world. Jesus has come to restore and renew all creation. And through his ministry, as we continue to read through the next couple of chapters of Luke and through the Gospels, we see this heavenly reality start to come, come alive a bit. We get glimpses of this. Um, and Luke lists story after story of, of Jesus' supernatural ministry, driving out demons, healing people from sickness and disability, forgiving people their sin. So that's the message he came to proclaim. Everybody still with me? I like it when Jordan's here. So let's look at um, how Jesus was received. So this is the message he delivered in the synagogue. How was he received? Verse uh, 
22 says, all spoke well of Jesus and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Which might sound wonderful, it might sound celebratory like they welcomed Jesus in, but scholars actually wrestle with this because you can actually interpret it in very, very different ways. And although it's usually translated in our Bibles in this positive way, it can actually be interpreted negatively where the congregation were unsettled by Jesus being there. They were upset by the graciousness of his tone. They looked down on him because he was just a mere carpenter's son who they all knew. But whichever way we look at this, um, as we read through the verses, the the further the passage goes on, we see that actually the people get enraged at Jesus. They get angry at him and they drag him out to a cliffside to be executed for blasphemy. So I don't think it's gone down very well. But when we begin to look at Nazareth, the context in which Jesus was preaching, Nazareth was actually a a long-standing nationalistic stronghold of devout, God-fearing Jews. That through the the waves of oppression and empires, it it remained quite steadfast. So into this really hard, encrusted context, Jesus didn't just quote Isaiah, but he reframed this very familiar prophecy to display God's agenda in offering salvation to the whole world, Jews and Gentiles. And after reading from Isaiah, Jesus recalls these two Old Testament stories of Elijah and Elisha where God actually shows mercy and healing. He extends the goodness of heaven to two Gentiles. You know, who'd have thought it? But the problem in Jesus' hometown was that they become so introspective. They become so internally focused and entitled that they'd lost the very concept of God's original promise to their forefather Abraham, which was to bless the whole world. They become hardened to God's mercy. They become hardened to God's mission. And they become entrapped by their own narrow-minded agenda. And for Jesus, one of their own, somebody who'd grew up amongst them and worked alongside them, this laborer with no real theological credentials, For him to stand in the pulpit, for him to preach a message of God's radical grace for all people, it offended every bone in their bodies. They didn't hear this as good news. It wasn't good news to them. It was intolerable. It was offensive. The Messiah was supposed to come back and restore Israel. He was supposed to give Israel her land back. The Messiah was supposed to come and restore Israel's power, drive out the foreign oppressors, that had imprisoned her for so long. That's what the gospel's about. But this new message that Jesus was preaching, it contradicted the intolerant nationalism of the Nazarenes. And so he was driven out of his hometown to be executed. But somehow we're told Jesus manages to slip away. I don't know how he did that. But he manages to escape the crowds. And of course, when we think about the whole gospel and where this whole story is going, this corporate hostility that Jesus experience. It was a foretaste of eventually how that would be received in Jerusalem, how he would end up being crucified on a Roman cross. And I think it's really important to note the situational irony here, that although Jesus came to die for all people, to bring salvation to all people, to Jew and Gentile, that he was eventually condemned by the Jews and executed by the Gentiles on a Roman cross. And so as we, we're not going to focus on them today, but hopefully you're reading these 
chapters as we journey through the gospel. But over the next couple of chapters of Luke, we see that Jesus' inaugural words begin to play out in practice. You know, he preaches in the synagogue and he goes and delivers what he's talking about. Proclamation of the gospel, justice and compassion. And we also read that the disciples are beginning to be called to follow him as well. And so Luke, as we said earlier, Luke begins to stack up these layers of evidence of how these things are being fulfilled among us. And actually, as readers, when we think of ourselves as the most excellent Theophilus in this story, we as the readers are being invited to respond to what is being fulfilled here. Are we hardened? Are we proud? Are we resistant to God's work like the Nazarenes? Or are we open? Are we humble before him? Are we receptive to the life-transforming power of the gospel like the disciples were? So three very quick things that um, hopefully will, um, as if it, you know, it's relevant enough, but three thoughts I had this week as I was um, thinking and preparing about this. Firstly, uh, the gospel that we are called to proclaim, it's all about Jesus. Who has the Spirit anointed? Who has God sent to preach the good news. Who has God sent to proclaim freedom for the captives in the year of the Lord's favor? Who comes in the power of the Holy Spirit? It's Jesus. Sunday school answer. The gospel is all about Jesus Christ. It's all, it always has been, it always will be about Jesus. The good news begins with him, it ends with him. Jesus came to proclaim this good news and exhibit the fullness of who God is and his heart for creation through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. And it saddens me and it grieves me, and I think it should you as well, that it, it, it's symptomatic of our sinful states that we are inclined to seek out alternatives to Jesus, to look elsewhere, to be reliant upon other philosophies and movements in the world around us. And actually, we get offended. So many people get offended at the exclusivity of Jesus. And we have that temptation. We're wrestling with that temptation, even today in the church, to dilute the gospel down, to make it sound relevant and palatable for people. But this gospel is all about Jesus. And so, Lord, forgive us when our words, when our lives point to anything or anyone other than you. Secondly, the, the freedom that we are called to exercise ultimately is for others. Luke was writing, I think Rich talked about this in the first week, Luke is writing to mainly a Gentile audience, those that weren't Jewish, that perhaps didn't know this stuff. And of course, within that context, his biggest hurdle was pers persuading people that the salvation that God had to offer was inclusive of them. And Luke doesn't in any way diminish Israel's heritage, but he's writing to convince Theophilus and people like him that through Jesus Christ, God's mercy is for them. God's mercy extends to the very ends of the earth. And this should be great news for us. You know, anybody here Jewish? No? This is, this is for us. This gospel was written to persuade and encourage and include people like me and you. And it's easy to forget that Luke's gospel was written 
to encourage and persuade people like you and me. And this gospel is good news for the poor in the widest sense. For you, for me, for Jew, for Gentile, for male, for female, for slave, for free. And again, we just ask, Lord, you forgive us. When, when like the people of Nazareth, we become so hardened that we ex- exude a false sense of entitlement, that this gospel belongs to us where we lose sight of the sheer grace that has allowed us to draw close to God in the first place. And of course, as we read through the Gospels, we know that Jesus commissioned his followers, you and I, to go and make disciples. This is the widening circle of God's kingdom. It's concerned with expansion and growth and the inclusive invitation for all people to encounter God at the foot of the cross. I think it's key for us, um, Kath was saying this a little bit earlier, uh, that I think it's key for us to understand what is meant by freedom here. If we're thinking actually this is a little bit richer than just a social gospel, what does freedom look like? The Apostle Paul says in his letter to, to the Galatians, he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And you might, you know, duh. In, in other words, the, the freedom that Christ leads us into means that we should not get imprisoned again by our former lives of sin. We're called to be free in the fullest sense, not to get entangled again by sin. And so we're not called to be a religious people bound by a legal code. And so the gospel frees us from legalism and self-righteousness. It's not a matter of us ticking boxes and doing all the right things. That, that, if that's the gospel you've heard, that's the, wrong, that's the wrong gospel. But neither are we called to be irreligious people, free to do whatever the heck we want. And so the gospel, on the other side of the coin, it frees us from moral anarchy, from lawlessness. And Paul continues to say in Galatians that we have, we have to flee run away from, despise the behaviors that are incompatible with God's holiness. Sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, witchcraft, jealousy, selfish ambition, drunkenness, and the list goes on. But actually in this new Jesus-shaped freedom, God calls us to exhibit the fruit of his Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, Jesus sets a new precedent for his church. And like him, we're called to model Christ-like freedom in our lives. A freedom that resists captivity to legalism. And a freedom that resists captivity to lawlessness. It's the third way. Finally, the courage that we are called to model is towards eternity. In his hometown, Jesus said the things that needed to be said. And he faced, probably knowing he would face this, he faced extreme resistance from people, people he loved and knew and grew up alongside. And Jesus is often portrayed as as meek, as mild, as gentle, as non-offensive, non-confrontational. But what we see here at the very start of his ministry is a courageous prophet somebody who contending for truth, somebody fully aware of the hostility that he would face. 
And the, the reality is that the good news of God that came in Jesus 2,000 years ago is awaiting a future climax. It's not yet fulfilled. The gospel, of course, is present. It, it means something here and now. But it's fundamentally future-focused. And the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, for the joy set before him, this trajectory, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus was motivated by the eternal hope and joy of the gospel. And in its mission for us here today, the church is called to model that same courage, that same tenacity as Jesus, to have our eyes fixed on the eternal hope. And Jesus says to his disciples in John 16, he says, I have told you all this, that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. And so Jesus anticipates opposition and suffering that will likely come our way in the same way it did for him, but he encourages us to take heart, because actually he's already won the victory. And as the people of God, we cannot be introspective like the Nazarenes. As disciples, we are called to further this mission, to expand this mission of liberation, to be witnesses and martyrs for the gospel. And it will cost us our lives. That's what discipleship is all about. And for many Christians across the world, that is literally what they face every day. But the source of courage comes from our eternal destination, our eternal home, where we will know joy, where we will know God forever 